welcome to the Recapables Billions on the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, now that she's finished sipping some 14-year-old single malt scotch with a morally compromised puppeteer, Pure Velvet, it's Ringer staff writer, your resident Chuck Rhodes apologist, Allison Herman. Mal, all due respect to my former podcast partners, there is literally no one I would rather be discussing this episode with. I'm flattered. Billion Season 3, Episode 7. Not you, Mr. Dake, which is what I've said literally every time Oliver Dake has been on the screen on Billions, ever. Individual sacrificing themselves for the whole can be the most beautiful thing there is, but not if it's done under duress or for the wrong reasons. alternate title ideas for this episode i only have one let's hear it i'd like to think it's a good one it's <laughs> operation get wendy off it's a masturbation euphemism <laughs> or just any sexual any sort activity, of sexual activity. We'll, we'll get to that <laughs> later in this episode i like it i uh i support sexual innuendo on this podcast and all podcasts as you know um i had a couple none of them were as good as that not the ketchup Poor Dr. Gilbert. Maybe that's just just a suggestion. When federal agents are raiding your house and you don't want them to find something, you don't yell what the thing is and, and tell stare them directly at it. Not to look yeah. at it. Yeah, that was a very tough moment for our boy. Uh, another one, Pure Velvet, the apt and creepy but beautiful description of that single malt 14-year-old Oban. And of course, Baby I Love You, in honor of one of I think the best, maybe two on the nose, but still one of the best musical cues in the show's history, which we will talk about at length. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Before we get into a more extensive plot discussion, and as always on Billions, there's quite a bit of plot to discuss. Give us that old 42-second recap. Aggie, start the clock. The unholy alliance of Chuck, Wendy, and Axe hits the ground running by identifying its patsy, Dr. Gilbert. Chuck plants the slide in his lovely Westchester home and psychologically warfares Dr. Gilbert into taking a plea by bringing out the big guns, i.e. Donnie Khan, to convince him he belongs in jail for something, if not the thing he was actually just arrested for. Axe brings back Fixer Hall slash Iceland from his fishing-based <laughs> retirement to falsify some phone records on Wendy's behalf when the Winklevye can't get the job done. And finally, Wendy works her magic on Mafi to get him to perjure himself on her behalf. Connerty is forced to dismiss the entire federal case against Bobby Axe Axelrod. Yay. Question mark? Let's celebrate in the hot tub. <laughs> Wax has it all ready for us. Yeah, a win for our characters, maybe not a win for justice or morality, but when is when is that a <laughs> justice when does or morality ever turn out well for those concepts? Quite agree. Before we talk about each of our uh, heroes, our leading lights at length. I'm curious for your take as the television critic. One, I loved this episode. I thought this was a really masterful hour of TV, not only because it was entertaining, it was amusing, it was dark in turn, but it did the thing that Billions keeps managing to achieve, which is you enter a season, you say, how are they going to sustain this plot for literally 12 full hours? They don't cut a minute off at any point. And then you get to this moment every season midway through where the thing that you've been thinking about is resolved, but 
simultaneously in a way that allows them a fresh road for the back half of the season and still keeps all of the essential core character plot threads hanging there for the show to grasp again at any point. Yeah, they really don't outstay their welcome in a way that I find really admirable. We should also mention that this episode was co-written by Brian Koppelman and David Levine. And, you know, a little insider tip for you casual TV watchers. When a mid-season episode is written, like, by the creators of the show, that's usually a tip that, like, something big's going to happen. It's something right. to keep an eye out for. And this was definitely one of those things because we thought the arc for the entire season was going to be the preparation of this case against Axe and the right. prosecution of it. And now it's just completely negated. And now the runway is cleared for John Malkovich to come in and just chew scenery left and right for the back half of the season. We hope. We, we think. Hope. We wonder. We're still Every waiting. week we wonder. <laughs> let's, let's chat about the homie Chuck Rhodes and Dr. Gilbert. And let's, we'll devote a moment or two to Dake if we must, just to say farewell. This was, in many ways, a Chuck episode. Even though all of the central figures get their time, everybody shares scenes together, we get to watch the people who we love most or loathe most interact. Chuck is really the through line of the episode. His machinations and his chicanery is the heart of the episode, as he will tell you (laughs) whenever he can. His deception of Dr. Gilbert is how the episode opens. He's talking to Dr. Gilbert. We think and Dr. Gilbert thinks about how they're going to frame Axe. Chuck is really framing Dr. Gilbert, setting him up to be the Patsy surprise (laughs) after Chuck, Wendy, and Axe have agreed that they need a fall guy. And everybody's got a role to play. Axe is tasked with planting the money trail and with finding a way to massage Wendy's phone records. Chuck, he has a little bit of a maybe not as obviously unsavory, but actually more challenging job, which is... It's pretty unsavory. (laughs) He plants evidence and gets a guy to confess to a crime that he didn't commit. Well, (laughs) yes, though Dr. Gilbert is not a innocent, beautiful flower. Dr. Gilbert is not without culpability, but also the psychological techniques that Chuck uses to convince Gilbert to flip, basically, uh, are... Equally, if not more applicable, Chuck himself. Here's my here's my scale. If you have not sent Hall into somebody's bed, you're slightly better than the person who did that thing. Just slightly, though. That seems fair. I <laughs> think we can agree Chuck on that. Chuck is reprehensible, and I'm looking forward to discussing how we feel about that. But Axe, money trail, mas- massaging Wendy's phone record. Chuck, leveraging Gilbert to prevent the case going to trial. They know that they can't actually let Gilbert take the stand at any point because there are too many holes here too many fingers that he can point and if one of us goes to jail we all do that's right he says i do think we should be getting along maybe they'd like being in jail together i don't know yeah maybe they could share a cell but i think one of the interesting things here is like this uh alignment of loyalties definitively breaks Chuck from even nominally working towards the cause of justice or you know prosecuting acts and bringing criminals in for what they've done This is like Chuck literally colluding to obstruct justice in a way that I think represents a pretty big signal shift for the character. And Axe opens the episode by basically being like, you need to like literally break a person's spirit to pull off your side of this scheme. Are you up for it? Do you have the stomach for it? And Chuck responds, of a billy goat. (laughs) (laughs) Just a real charming metaphor. So it's interesting to hear you frame it that way because I, I don't agree. I think Chuck 
made that turn a long time ago. But I definitely think the show agrees with you. And we hear the words come out of Chuck's mouth when he's talking to Dr. Gilbert. He says, you know, they're talking about wartime and paratroopers. And despite the sergeant saying there was no shame, everyone knew there was nothing but shame. So they jumped and that's where we are. The show is identifying through Chuck's own words this moment of no return where it's time for him He's saying to Dr. Gilbert, but really also for Chuck. And that's kind of the theme of their conversations throughout the entire episode is everything Chuck is saying to Dr. Gilbert about Dr. Gilbert is really projection. Chuck just isn't self-aware enough anymore to see that. And this is painful to watch. Again, this is just the first scene. We're not even in the interrogation room with them yet. Chuck is spelling out to Dr. Gilbert how he is going to tear his life apart. But the doctor has no idea. He's too slow to notice what's happening. Chuck mentions the ketchup bottle. He mentions agents busting in during family time. He says, distraction of the principal, subterfuge, stealth, the trifecta of chicanery. I mean, I didn't totally catch what was happening in that scene the first time I watched it, but I rewatched it shortly before we started recording, and it's really tough. I mean... It's also especially cruel that Chuck, one of the toxic tactics he uses in the interrogation room is basically to be like, well, you were okay with me doing all this when it was with someone else. Yes. Now that, you know, the chickens have come home to roost, you're not so willing to be cooperative. Right. So before we get to that moment when Chuck is trying to, in essence, secure Gilbert's consent, Gilbert says it's no different from emergency room triage after a mass casualty. You save who you can and force the rest out of your mind. And Chuck says, I hope you'd see it that way. Of course, that's how Chuck is convincing himself to see it, too, and has been for some time. So when Dr. Gilbert is sitting in his underwear and it's Johns Hopkins t-shirt, eating ice cream with his kids, talking about prestigious scholarships as one does. Yeah, some real accurate uh, <laughs> testaments to the Westchester <laughs> County upper upper middle class slash upper class. Truly incredible stuff. And the feds raid his home. There's this truly priceless moment when he finally realizes everything clicks into place for him and he realizes what's happening and then implicates himself. Says, You've got this backwards. He's talking to Sacker. Sacker. I've been working with Rhodes. And then right away, oh, oh, he didn't. Not the ketchup. Oh, no, he didn't. (laughs) And then we get to the interrogation room that you just mentioned. And Gilbert calling Chuck out on his bullshit and his deceptions right away. He says, I guess I'm not the only one who can triage. Well, no. I mean, that's the thing about this show is that everybody can or at least thinks they can play the game. The moment when Chuck introduces himself to Gilbert, playing out this fallacy that they have never met, I found disturbing in a way that I have rarely found anything on the show disturbing. That is actual psychosis playing out before our eyes. Yeah. I I mean, I know you think that Chuck crossed the line a long time ago. I agree. I think Chuck definitely took a some kind of turn a 27 million dollar turn when he sacrificed his fortune his father and his best friend Ira but I think on some level Chuck truly did justify himself by thinking that he is better or on some kind of moral high ground relative to the person who sends Hall the Fixer into someone's bedroom to blackmail them and I think this episode like the nonchalance with which he's just like okay I'm going to work with this person I've considered my arch enemy for years and the person that I have considered like not just opposed to but better than the way that he doesn't even appear to stop to consider that to consider the implications of that that I thought was like a specific step forward or downward that we had not seen Chuck take before I would like to posit to you that 
what you just sketched out, the fact that Chuck thinks that he is whatever he's doing, whatever the nature of it is, whatever the specifics are, is ultimately like for the right reason, for the greater good, very Grindelwaldian of him. (laughs) That actually makes him worse because Axe doesn't really think he's the good guy. He doesn't think he's a villain. He thinks that he's living by a more modern code than everybody around him and that he's figured out something else in a way that makes him special and specifically worthy of the good things that have happened to him. Chuck is really more of the classic, the villain always actually thinks he's the hero. And we're seeing that it's coming out in starker relief every episode. And I think we saw it, to your point, more clearly than ever in the interrogation room scenes with Gilbert. The way that Chuck describes guilt. You mean the book report he delivers (laughs) about guilt? Many of our greatest minds in literature is the opening sentence to a five-paragraph essay on the SAT. That is not something a United States attorney uses in an interrogation tactic. I loved it. I could see him opening up his trapper keeper to get out his report. He says, have you ever given much thought to the nature of guilt? And I'm like literally shouting at my screen, look inward, my dude. Have you? He basically just says like, guilt is a state of mind. Right. So Gilbert goes on to say this is about facts. And Chuck says, well, that is a question of fact, but guilt is also a state of mind. Some of our greatest works of literature (laughs) prove this very issue. What is guilt? Who should be punished? For what? What is the cost, the grinding, wearing price of carrying internal culpability, even while escaping external blame? Often is not right at the very center of the question stands a great man who has transgressed. He is word for word, note for note, describing himself. I think we've had moments in the past where Chuck was projecting and realized he was doing it. I'm not sure he even realizes that's happening anymore. It seems like he has no awareness of who he is and where he is on the moral scale. I do think, you know, we'll obviously have what we're looking forward to in future weeks at the end of the podcast, but some window, we're getting Chuck in action right now and kind of in I can't stop to think mode. I'm curious if he will be put in a position in a similar way to like Ira calling him out in the beginning of the season. Just some peek into either how he's thinking about himself, how he's not thinking about himself. Because I think relative to Wendy and Axe are Basically, I mean, Wendy kind of does a heel turn, but Axe especially is just acting the way he always has. But I think Chuck has shifted his position relative to what he's historically occupied more in a way that I I would like to hear his perspective on it. Right. We get that one tiny moment at the end when he's visiting with Senior, who is mercifully clothed this time. (laughs) And (laughs) Chuck says that the winds cost more. He can feel it. He describes how old he feels, how weary he is. As he sounds like as old as, as you. you. Sounds like a tired <laughs> old man. What a neg. But before that, in this interrogation room, in the heat of his deception, he isn't seeing all of that or isn't allowing himself to give in to that kernel of doubt that maybe still exists inside of him. He says to Gilbert... I loved this part. You used your skills and abilities to help him at one point, him being Axe, and then against him at another when that suited you. And you jumped at the chance to torpedo his life to save your own. What does that say about you? What does that say about your own need to atone? 
He's just, that's him. That's Chuck. That's literally what he did with Axe. But it's also literally everyone else on this show. And I think part of the Chuck's transition is just a pure Axian, if you will. Dog eat dog. I'm doing what I have to do. Something I am also very curious about. This episode puts Chuck and Axe on the same side, but it doesn't actually advance the relationship that much. Right. We basically get them in the room at the very beginning, and then they basically go go team, and then they split up and do their. Various Were you let down by that? Things. Not to cut you off, because I want to hear what you have to say, but I I could have had an entire episode that was just the three of them sitting at that table. Oh, absolutely, but also there there was some stuff that needed to be done. I think we'll get that in weeks to come, although maybe not because they kind of did their thing, and now they can go their separate ways. But we don't get a lot of insight into if and how these two men's view of each other has changed and the relationship between the two is essentially the subject of the show. Right. So Gilbert is the one who allows Chuck to bring up the idea of judgment. Gilbert starts talking about his work and he's done this before. My noble profession. He says, I'm a cancer doctor. I learned a long time ago that all sorts of folks go down. All sorts live. It never has anything to do with who deserves which. Found myself thinking about Gandalf and Frodo and the conversation in Lord of the Rings about who has the right to choose whether someone else lives and dies. And unfortunately for Dr. Gilbert, bringing up his cancer work and his research. Yeah, really not smart move again, psychologically. Bad call because Chuck just whips out a photo of Donnie in Christmas garb, which was an extra specific, I'm going to make this person feel like garbage touch from Chuck because we know that Gilbert's decision regarding Donnie's care prevented him from having one more Christmas with his family. And Chuck says, you know that this is the moment you deserve to face. He tells him this is about justice. He implores him to take a five-year plea. He talks about the the money trail, this $11 million ice juice plant that Axe and Victor have staged. And when Gilbert says, after agreeing, after finally breaking down his own guilt about what what he did and what he allowed Axe to convince him to do to Donnie, consumes him. And Chuck is walking out, and Gilbert says, I asked how you would plant a slide on Axe, but how did you plan it on me? And then we, have, as viewers, have the benefit of actually seeing the sequence. Classic. Classic billions. High, high sequence. Classic. But Chuck doesn't share any of this information. He says, no, Doc. The guilt must be doing things to your memory. You had it the whole time. This is the bad guy. That's and some 1984 shit. That's some like, <laughs> I'm going to straight up double think you into thinking you are actually guilty of this specific thing. That yes. Truly a monster. Chuck is also still playing Dake. You know, Dr. Gilbert is not his only victim in this oh, episode. Oh, Dake. Of course, we're at the point where basically everyone is playing Dake. Carl. Now loyal to Chuck, not his former boy, Oliver. It's not too long ago that we saw Carl and Oliver just hanging out at church, having a chat. I will only ever see Carl as Lou from Mad Men. And I just like cannot (laughs) buy his whole smooth operator, evil schemer shtick. But I buy Dake's even less. Like, so Dake calls in Carl to... Yeah, run Call us through it. Favor. Pour us a glass of scotch and run us through <laughs> a it. Fourteen-year-old scotch, which somehow a Pure United velvet. States attorney, a public employee, <laughs> can afford. Who's also, I, I totally would have taken Dick for teetotaler. He might well be one. But I, I personally really enjoyed the contrast of Dake procuring a bottle of single malt scotch when we always see 
Wags and Axe drinking Michters, which is a rye bourbon or sour mash line, not a single malt scotch. Bartender that's just a, Mal that's a in real the clash. I liked that a lot. It's like a subtle touch, but it's a, it's a, you know, that's a big picking up on insight. these details, Mal, are, is why you're so great at this podcast. <laughs> it sailed right over my head. I love but whiskey. What can I say? The biggest note that I took of the scene is just Dake is so bad at playing this game. Of yes, course he gets he's played. terrible. He's so terrible at it. And he calls Carl in basically to be like, I'm going to cash the favor that I implanted by giving you this job in the Southern District. Not basically. He literally says those words out yeah, not, loud. Not subtle. He says, I'm asking you, Carl, because you're the one I got the job for. You're the one I had the deal with. Like, dude. In a in a voice that is barely above a line. He's playing like, with his wedding ring, all these like nervous ticks. I it, got you the job. It <laughs> Tell reminded me. What I me. Know. <laughs> he, he, as you said, no subtlety. I found myself while reflecting on Dake's absurd lack of subtlety. One of my all-time favorite lines from Harry Potter. When <laughs> Mal, have you been have you been revisiting Harry Potter? Recently? I think about it often. <laughs> I think about it often. Please listen to binge mode Harry Potter coming coming to a podcast feed near you on June 11th. When Snape says to Harry. You have no subtlety, Potter. You do not understand fine distinctions. It is one of the shortcomings that makes you such a lamentable potion maker. <laughs> I always loved that so oh, much. And this is one of the things that makes Dake such a lamentable maneuverer. This is why that moment is a microcosm for why he could never make it in this world. He's just not up to playing the game with these guys. And if we can fast forward a bit to the end of the episode. Yes, please. He gets straight up fired. He's just out. Jack Jeffcoat. Not Your you, favorite. Mr. I was, Dake. I was personally happy for you when Jack Jeffcoat Truly a great Jeffcoat scene. Truly a great Jeffcoat scene. And Chuck and Dake have a final moment on the streets. Dake's carrying those absurdly oversized briefcase slash luggage things that I just assume contain numerous pairs of ironed white boxer shorts and hair gel. And he says, for you to Chuck, it's a total victory. And then goes on to describe how he basically has seen for quite some time that he was in over his head and was not going to be able to make it out of this alive. But when you're in the cannon, there's only one way out, right, for you to be the cannon fodder. What about Axe? What about Mafi? What about Wendy? The Winkletech twins, they're failing Axe regarding hacking one sky that's wendy's cell provider and Axe says i pay you to accomplish tasks in the in the window required time to find hall time Who to find iceland not in iceland although i did brief, yeah i briefly entertained that possibility but the real tell is when he mentions quote timmy ho-hos yes i am half canadian <laughs> I have never heard Tim Hortons <laughs> addressed by that particular, not even abbreviation. I don't think you save any syllables, but just weird nickname. Always count on Hall to make things about 25 degrees more uncomfortable than they need to be. What do you think of Hall's beard? He's got this like it's this really, lush. I would call it Letterman-esque. He looks like a man <laughs> who retired from late night and is now rocking out his lack of TV obligations, although he is, of course, on television as an actor. <laughs> of course, of course. But, and Max? Tells Hall, time to suit up. He needs him again. The Winkle Eye. Not a lot of hesitation on Hall's part either. He's been waiting. He's been waiting around, waiting for Axe to swing by for a visit. And Axe has a lot of little visits he needs to make throughout the course of this episode. He also has to check in on the homie Mafi. 
much of the episode is devoted to Axe and then Wendy trying to find a way to get Muffy to lie so that Wendy is off the hook for taking the short position against Ice Juice. And when Axe goes in to kind of sweet talk Muffy a little bit, he can't remember what sport Muffy used to play. He says, I thought it was football. It's lacrosse. Axe is slipping. That was like yeah. an alarming moment so to for, me. I mean, they literally focused a few episodes with the whole like Dr. Gilbert fantasy sequence device on Axe possibly losing his ability to read the room, to which make is the his call. most valuable right. skill. So first we have this very telling. He doesn't know what sport Muffy played. But then later when he goes to Taylor to figure out what motivates Muffy and therefore how he can leverage him to do his bidding, Taylor very honestly says he would lie only to protect someone he loves. That's it. Right. And He'd never Axe, do something that violated his sense of honor. And Axe fails to connect the dots that Wendy, as we know from a certain butt sweat themed conversation, <laughs> is someone that he maybe not consciously loves, but feels a lot of loyalty and affection for the exact same way Axe does. The exact same way Axe immediately, after refusing to even contemplate the prospect of giving up his ability to trade, is like, right. I will take it. I will go to prison for you. Right. One of the things that Taylor suggests to Axe when Axe goes to consult Taylor on Mephi is that either Axe doesn't have basically the time to care anymore or that maybe he never did. And I that didn't ring true to me. Like, I think he, he always did care. He made an effort to get to know his people, and that was always a differentiator for him, that he didn't have to doubt where Victor or Dollar Bill or... Muffy or anyone stood on a given moment what kind of decision he could trust that person to make. He always knew his people. And now for the first time, he doesn't. That's a problem for him long term. I think it's a symptom of the day-to-day separation. He's not helming the ship anymore. It's Taylor who is and Taylor who can offer this insight. Right. Axis home watching Inglorious Bastards. Who (laughs) we just get a lot of. I really appreciate the opportunity to get to know Muffy. I'm always really curious how someone like Ben Fudgy the Whale Kim or Muffy or Taylor. Obviously, we got a lot of this last season. But how the sort of nicer, cutesier, less dollar bill-esque figures in Axe Capital justify their role in a company they probably know on some level or do know is not entirely above board. Right. And Mafi says, I've always prided myself in knowing that my bros back home will never see me arrested on TV. They, I'm one of the good ones. Right. This was a really just genuinely very sweet and charming scene between Mafi and Taylor who have sincere affection for each other. And Mafi doesn't feel any shame in saying that to Taylor. And she doesn't make him feel any shame when he puts that out into the world. And I thought that was beautiful and very rare on this show for people to allow themselves to be vulnerable in front of each other. And when Mafi is trying to figure out whether he wants to fall on the grenade for the company, for Axe, really, because it's always for Axe. The company and, the, and Axe are one and the same, at least for now. And Taylor says, the individual sacrificing themselves for the whole can be the most beautiful thing there is, but not if it's done under duress or for the wrong reasons. Taylor is probably the only person in that office, certainly in that moment, but maybe ever, who would actually give Mafi that kind of guidance. Yeah, it's a really sweet relationship in a way that kind of brings up the theme of a lot of the relationships Taylor has forged at Axe Cap are kind of unusual points of connection or commonality in a very harsh and Darwinian workplace. And Mephi just comes through as this guy who is also 
in pretty over his head. Yeah. I, I do respect the courage of Axe walking in and basically be like, will you do shady illegal shit for me? And Muffy being like, I will kill myself for this job. Right. But I'm not interested in going beyond that. That's what I was sort of getting at earlier with still that key distinction between Chuck and Axe. They're both down in the muck together, but Axe is still willing to be honest about it. And Chuck can't be. He won't allow himself or anybody else to see what he's become. Axe owns it. That's why I'm Team Axe, Allison. But like the thing he owns <laughs> is so gross. We'll get to this well, later. Yeah, yeah. But okay. <laughs> so then, so Mafi ultimately this ends up being, in many ways, a Mafi and Wendy episode. And Wendy, she's meeting with Axe and Lauren Buck and Winklevi, and we're just having a chat in one of these all glass conference rooms that I've always found uh, extremely unwise when you're trying to have a surreptitious like confidential meetings because Taylor is just watching at multiple points in the episode what is transpiring in this room and growing increasingly concerned. And Wendy says of Muffy, his unwillingness to lie, his sense of honor, his great big sweet heart, all these things that seem like impediments, we can use them. I can use them. Interesting How? episode for Wendy. Yes. Taylor confronts her and basically says, I don't think you're actually acting in your patient's best interest, which is maybe the worst accusation professionally that you can make against someone who, as Taylor reminds her, has literally made an oath not to harm anyone. Right. Not the most subtle episode for Wendy, but we've also, this episode is coming at the end or after a few episodes worth of heavy, heavy foreshadowing that Wendy is either losing her touch, is kind of buckling under stress, is maybe shifting the way she thinks about how she conducts herself a little bit. And sort of similar to Chuck, I think takes and breaks bad that much more this episode where she is openly and nakedly manipulating someone who's supposed to be in her care for right. her self-interest. And that person is Mafie, who has a big, fat crush on her. Right. I'm glad you said nakedly, because a lot of this was about how Mafie wants to fuck Wendy. Oh. <laughs> Wendy just <laughs> likes me, which is the most, like, that's another yes. thing about Mafie is that he comes across very childlike. Right. He, like, he literally yes. has that in a foosball table me. in his apartment. And I think a vintage arcade game in the background. I didn't, I didn't pause to zero in on that. Also, the Hell in a Cell poster that Taylor gave him. Very sweet. That's what he checks his we hair in. Know when Mufi he and over. the actor who plays him, Dan Soder, who does a great job in this episode, we should mention, yes. is a fan of wrestling. That's right. So, Wendy, after the he likes me, we all like you. No, he likes me. Oh, moment. Wendy goes to Mafia's apartment and is all sexed up, you know, black dress, really hair done, subtle seduction technique. I hated what Wendy was doing in this scene. I liked the scene, but I hated it as someone who loves Wendy. It's tough. She is... Here, here are some of the things she says and does <laughs> in this scene. He thinks he's being fired, right? She, when he offers, you know, do you want to you want a snack? You want to you drink? He's probably got like just Cheetos and beer. <laughs> Even though he said he was trying to eat healthy, and so maybe like, not. I'll have what you're having. Right. And sexually drinks a beer. Takes his beer. And takes a sip of it. His beer. That's also, I think the Wendy character both consciously and unconsciously embodies a lot of male fantasies. It's something I've talked about in this podcast before. Yes. A chick who can hang and drinks beer is the literal textbook definition 
of a heterosexual male fantasy. Yeah, I love that about Wendy. That's the thing. I don't ever hold that against her. I think that's one of the reasons she's such a compelling character. But in this moment, I don't know. I guess I didn't. It felt there was we we were forced to acknowledge that she knows that, right? And something I mean, we're forced to acknowledge it very early, which you know when they're when they're debating who to be who to pin this on, who to be their patsy, right? And they, Chuck, Chuck and Axe they don't first think she start can discussing it. this right. when she leaves the room. And, like, both agree we cannot talk about this in front of her. She's not down for this. And this needs to be the subterfuge thing. And it's a great moment, but it's also a little bit of a distressing moment when she comes back and is like, all right, guys, right. who's taking the fall for this? We all need, We all know it needs to happen. Right. And she both exceeds their expectations and maybe underperforms ours. But also, we'll get. I think we're going to discuss this later on. Yes. But they think they're going to have to talk her into this level of corruption or shield her from it. And she's like, "Let's go. I'm, I'm down. Hand, hand me a lamb chop. Let's go." So, and back with Mafie, he's like, "So, what's this visit about?" And she says, "You, me, the us. two of us." <laughs> it's just like gross. And she's putting her head on his shoulder and putting her hand on his knee. I loved the way that it felt to me very much that Mafi's hands were like intentionally placed in such a position that he could shield a boner should one develop. That's that's when how the he physical said, positioning oh felt. Oh no. There's like a pause before he says I'm getting fired R&I or something to that right. effect and I totally thought it was going to be Completely. like I have a boner right Completely. now. Completely. And then we get the Dudley reveal which is perfect. She says he he asks, how bad could this get for for you? Because she's, you know, explaining that the the he's the one who placed the short order for and her. And she says, you know, no one else would ask her that, which right. we know is a lie because this whole thing is happening because Axe is the person who would ask that, who would be like, exactly. I value what happens to you more than what happens to myself. Right. The, the reason that Chuck and Axe are able to find this common ground is because they both say that protecting Wendy is the most important thing. And she says, that's what makes you so special, Dudley. I know you prefer your last name, but can I call you that? And then kind of grabs his chin and pulls his face toward her and then says, now I have to go. <laughs> but he first, must have taken the longest no, cold wait, shower This happens that. later in yes. the episode. We're building up but to that. I, th- I think we should just fast forward to like the resolution of this, which yes. is just the time has run out. Connery is unable or he thinks he's able to prevent present evidence. And then the FBI agent comes in and is like, actually, the phone records that have been falsified say something else. Right. Which leads to a very dramatic courtroom moment in something that. It, in real life, it's something that is not a scripted drama thing would probably happen like three hours before. Right. After. Not at the exact moment not that like Julia was about to read the verdict. Span it needs to happen. But it's a great TV moment. It is. Where Connery is like, oops, yes. I've been misled. JK NVM. <laughs> the case is dropped. Access free to go. Right. Mafi decides to say that he initiated the call to Wendy. He offered up this inside information. He told her to take this position. It was him. It wasn't her. She didn't do anything wrong. He'll have to pay a fine. Box sums this up neatly at the end for our benefit and Axis. Company, no admit, no deny, civil penalty, $390 million. Axe agrees on the spot. That's nothing for him. Mafi, tier three penalty, $181,000 fine. Nice follow-up to, oh, no, we'll only have to live on $350 million for the rest of our lives. Really puts that in some, Bobby, in some perspective. Bobby, just doesn't seem like enough. <laughs> I was also trying to figure out, like, what percentage of Mafi's annual income 181 k is, and I'm betting... I'm betting and like annual bonus. 
It's just like the moment when one of the th- so Axe covers the fine. But he will have to pay it, but Axe is going to pay him for it. And then Axe gives him a stick, which we know is a million dollars in crypto. And we see we do see, you know, Mafi maintains this level of somewhere between composure and despondence because he feels terrible about all of this. This does in some way violate his moral compass, though ultimately he feels okay about it because he's protecting Wendy. We see his eyes lift when Axe says what is on that stick that he's handing him. That is a lot of money for him. So this is a, this is a big deal for him financially, but it also gets back to the, the line you mentioned earlier when he's talking to Taylor about how he justifies his existence and how his friends think about him and not always being able to tell himself that he wasn't a name they were going to hear on the news. That's not true anymore. That's a terrible thing for him. Yeah, really rough. Not as rough as it was for Connerty, though, who, as you said, after leading these motions and in the court and he's boasting and he's making speeches and he's throwing insults and jabs and then they go into Julio's chambers and he's explaining what al dente means and he's like just let me lay out for you all this evidence I have and how amazing this trial is going to be and he's Julio is saying he's we're taking this to trial he's on the verge of actually picking a date and that's when Connerty has to say need a recess and then come in later and say that they are not able to proceed they will be dropping the case what a truly brutal moment for him. Jeff Coat makes him feel like shit about it, sends him back to Southern, so he's under Chuck's yeah, I was about to rule ask, again. Where where does he go from here? He's going to have to operate in a professional environment with this guy. Well, he swears out loud in court that he is going to continue to pursue justice, which I think everyone in the courtroom thinks means Axe, but we know as viewers that that means Chuck just as much as anything else. And Connerty also had a pretty painful moment with Sacker. Yeah, and that he's, was tough. That was really a phenomenal scene. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But he's now back with these two people who he used to love and admire and he is now genuinely disgusted by. And they are actually disgusted by him too for the opposite reasons. And all of these people are going to be together again. Let's get to some awards. Great. Most scarring scene. Not that scarring of an episode. I feel like we should note because this season of Billions has really lifted the bar high. There wasn't a lot of old man nudity. There wasn't a lot of incestuous makeouts. This was a pretty straightforward episode, but that does not mean that there was not some scarring moments. (laughs) I will start with mine, which is after all the dust has settled, the team axe cap. So Orenbach, Wags, Axe, and Wendy exit the war room and are kind of like, what are we going to do to celebrate? Axe says he wants some peace and quiet. Wendy agrees. They go their separate ways. (laughs) Wendy puts on her Mrs. Martinez outfit, which is the closest we get to a real scarring scene. I found it pretty scarring to see Chuck and Wendy just in bed together with her in that outfit in her robe open and Chuck just in his maybe like, maybe I have the stomach garb. of the two of us I am the one with the stomach of a billy goat <laughs> but I was scarred by what happens next because Wags being Wags obviously rigs up an extremely debaucherous uh festivity at Axe's apartment. There are literally only hot women everywhere. (laughs) It's purple lit, which is how you know some shit is about to go down. There are shots everywhere. There are pills. There are pills. And the first thing Axe does before, like when he processes what's happening, like the true queen's dirtbag that he still is deep down is that he rips off his shirt, but he still has his chain 
And I'm sorry, but a nearly 50-year-old de facto, like, Irish guido, basically, like, shirtless with a chain. I just, I literally said, ew, (laughs) like, out loud. No offense to Damien Lewis, who's a wonderful man, very attractive, (laughs) but in the specific context, in character. This is how deeply he goes in character was that I was repulsed by this moment. I had a very different reaction to that scene. I bet Shock no one to hear. I was like, yes! We also get his bare ass. Yeah, that was right. He took his pants off, too. It was mostly like the shirtlessness with the chain. That was just like, I don't need to see this. So there's a certain like fluidity to his motions. You know, he and Wag are riding up in the elevator and we hear the music pumping before they even get out of the elevator. So yeah. Axe knows Wags. We what know Wags you do? is not going to let <laughs> you do? Axe go home to an evening of peace and quiet. I will say the, the sub scarring moment within your larger scarring scene is <laughs> the way that Damien Lewis, who I love, truly took that pill it very much reminded me of prior scenes of him holding pizza and it's like a running billions joke among billions <laughs> enthusiasts that these these actors he's british he's posh male ackerman swedish hoity toity none of these people European know how to hold folks. pizza and but european soda pop pills he but he the way he threw that pill into his mouth and then kind of lingered with his mouth hanging open and the pill on his tongue so that we could see it and his nostrils flaring before he yeah. threw back the shot. Also, I was just like, like, this man has never done drugs. The way he kind of like oonces <laughs> along with the beat yeah. is like, who are well, you? That, what is happening? What I loved though. So then after he takes the pill, he's making his way through the room, a beeline straight for the hot tub where there are three completely nude women who he gets into the hot tub with as you noted, he is also completely nude at this point. Also, how long do we think this has been going before he goes? Like, how long have they had to warm up? Because they, they're, they like, fully, like, mid-debauching. It's a great question. I have no idea. I feel like everybody in that room probably doesn't need much warming up. They're probably just kind of ready to <laughs> Fair. go. I, I will say, getting into a hot tub with naked strangers, questionable hygiene. So I worry about access health a little bit here. Um, my most scarring scene was definitely Hall getting into bed, showing up in bed, in the bed of the one sky tech and his mistress, because it's clear from the conversation. Not quite a mistress. It seems like an extramarital partner, but the guy responds, I mean, like, you can't blackmail me with who I'm sweeping. Right. Sweep, we sweeping have a different, kind of, have a different kind of marriage. Yeah. He's not worried about his wife finding out that he's fucking around. But we have just seen Hall sneak into people's apartments and catch them in compromising positions so many times at this point, And yet I find it just so unnerving every single time he's sitting on the bed they are nude and manages to only wake up one of them which i thought was some real espionage skill i think i'm a little bit inured to hall's you know shady dealings but your second most scarring moment was my honorable mention and i think we should we should dedicate some time to it watching wendy try to manipulate Muffy. not try to manipulate Muffy. But I just found this. She rewards him. No, that I, we part I loved. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. So we should mention. So after <laughs> Wendy, Wendy the gives the testimony, Wendy walks up all sexily, right. says she wants to thank him. We fear the worst, but she just before she leans in, she says this is platonic. But she like 
fully plants one on Muffy. And in my notes, I was like, the expression on his face afterward is, you know, in cartoons when someone gets hit in the head and you see like the birds twittering right. around, you could literally like see that happen in his expression just from one kiss. And I, she literally pushes him into the she elevator. Does. She just, she kiss walks him into the elevator. I loved that scene. I thought the, the, my scarring scene was the first one where Wendy goes to his apartment because it felt so out of character for her that I was just like uncomfortable watching it play out and watching her manipulate somebody in that fashion. The second scene from when I wasn't even viewing that one from Wendy's perspective. I think that one of the things the show, well, two of the things the show does well, one music cues and the Ronettes baby. I love you kicks on right as she steps out as Mafi sees her. And it is just priceless to hear those lyrics playing as Mafi is getting his reward. And the other thing that the show does really well is it allows you as a viewer to give in to the temptation to think about your life just paying off in a fantasy moment. And that maybe that's an okay thing to want and an okay thing to feel good about if you get it. And I like that. I like the way that they're able to pull that off. Like, it's so on the nose. It's a little bit corny. The music choice is cliche, but it also all feels perfect because it feels true to me that that's actually how that would be playing out in Mafi's mind. Like, you could tell me he's just hearing that song in his head and I would buy that fully. Well, that's that's what good music supervision does, right? It yeah. puts you in the mindset of the characters in the moment. And this sure does that. Sure does. But I went home and I was was singing that song to my cat. I'm a little surprised that you were scarred by the attempted seduction or like the sort of pseudo seduction and not the one where our married protagonist who is also work married to someone else plants one on a guy who is like, 15 years her junior probably oh uh, age is but a number that doesn't bother me at all and hey, hey she I said the kiss the was power, platonic the you know? power dynamics there were a little i just felt like mafia really got the win there that he needed that was the that's the only thing that moment is going to be the thing that allows him not, to feel okay about yeah, his choice it's not really a win though for me but i guess before before we fully litigate that we should just run through some pop culture references of the week what do you got you had a couple so I think one of the things that is really specifically billions that I really enjoy that they do is that they they prize pop culture references and pop culture knowledge so much right. that one of the ways that they subtly own their characters and that you can really tell who's losing, who's got the lower hand in the situation is when people make botched references. So yes. there are two. One is Connerty is riffing in the judges' chambers. Well, one isn't a pop culture reference. It's him explaining what al dente means literally <laughs> and Judge Giulio being my being like, my last name is DiGiulio. I know what al dente means. <laughs> to the tooth. But another is uh, Connerty is railing against Wendy and her complicity in the scheme and he says she's on the bad news bears and Bach accurately points out that the bad news bears are who you're supposed to be rooting for. They were for. the good guys. They're the good guys. The bad guys are the rich kids. And Connerty just kind of like looks ashamed before the conversation moves on. But that's that's how you know he's really losing this week. I was going for the team image. <laughs> and another one that just further, you know, as if letting a man die unnecessarily was not enough to turn you against Dr. Gilbert or just his general smug demeanor and insistence that his being a doctor actively improves the world. You get Chuck, you know, getting warmed up, mentions Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. 
And Gilbert, like the worst dude in your college philosophy seminar, responds by saying, I prefer to read, which newsflash, you can read and ingest pop culture. We like many things here at TheRinger.com, highbrow, lowbrow, everything in between. Dr. Gilbert is clearly not on the side of the Billions writer's room. (laughs) Telltale sign. Those are my two favorite. One other notable thing about the Butch Cassidy scene is that it's not the first time Chuck has brought that up. We got that early on in season one, and it led to one of the first moments where we identified a rift forming between just in the mindset between Chuck and Connerty, because Chuck is using this extended Butch Cassidy metaphor to explain how he's pursuing acts and how he thinks about acts. And Connerty says... I didn't root for the posse. I rooted for Butch and Sundance. So we've 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 seen uh we've seen Butch and Ca- Butch Cassidy come up before. A couple other ones. Chuck regarding the need for a patsy for Wendy Axe, this whole thing. He says there has to be a gunman in the depository window. Just your normal JFK assassination Texas school book depository reference to bring up at a casual meal with your new cohorts. I think the characters on Billions talk like, how shall we put it? Not real humans ever would. (laughs) We get a lot of historical references, almost as many as we get. I'd say if you combined history and sports, that would equal the number of pop culture references we get. There's another one when Bach and Connerty are having one of their many arguments uh, mediated by DiGiulio. And Bach says, this isn't the Politburo. You can't just slander your neighbors to get ahead in the bread line. And DiGiulio says, whoa. I invite you to my home for a nice dinner. You people are trying to turn it into the Animal House toga party. Chambers, now. Love an Animal House reference. There's also... Did Julia, this, maybe the stealth MVP of pop culture references of the season. He So to the point where literally everything he says now, I Google to see if it's a pop culture reference because he just speaks in this kind of coded language that always feels like it's hearkening back to something that someone else no should understand. No wonder Chuck wanted him more than Leonard Funt, who I don't think ever Funted. said a pop culture reference Got while he funted. was on screen. Um, Jack Jeffcoat gives a best little whorehouse in Texas nod to Connerty when he says your case just fell apart like a cheap bed in a LaGrange whorehouse. And this isn't really pop culture, though I guess you could count commercials and food consumption as pop culture of a sort when Connerty approaches Sacker about her failing conscience about Dr. Gilbert. Uh, he says, it's like eating those potato chips. Once you get going, prosecuting people who don't deserve it gets hard to stop. One of the things that makes it tough to root for Connerty, who I love, is that he's so corny and so lame. He's like such a square. That's your best line, my dude, is a Pringles nod. You know, he operates in a different manner i root for him i really do but he makes it hard and then there's a nice little sports reference when chuck presents senior papa with ben hogan's one iron from the miracle at marion the 1950 u.s open chuck quotes lee trevino saying not even god can hit a one iron and then tells his father that the the perjury charges against him are, are they're behind them and he says this club is a memento to recognize the impossible just the waspiest son to father <laughs> gift that you could ever dream of many members of the ringer staff love golf some of them are trying to semi-ironically reclaim it for the younger hipper set yeah. i reject this effort outright <sighs> it is a corny older skewing sport for mostly white men and i think this show honors it as such 
No slander Listen, to any golf fans, Listen. but I think we need to be real about what the true core demographic of the sport is. These two are just trying to rebuild their bond, you know? Just trying I don't know to if that bond should bond. be rebuilt. It's but, true. Uh, let's talk about MVP of the episode. A lot of so, choices. Good episode for I a lot of people. I think something we should talk about is one of my MVP candidates is one of your LVP candidates. Yes. So maybe we should take this time to litigate what the events of this episode mean for our beloved Wendy Rhodes. Why don't you start by making the case for why she's the MVP and why this is a good Wendy episode? So I will concede this is maybe the worst episode in the show's history for Wendy's morality. <laughs> but I also think we need to be real that this entire show rests on an objectively insane conflict of interest that she has been occupying without much self-imposed conflict for the entire duration of the show. Right. So I think Wendy has always been somewhat compromised in a way that sometimes we're blinded to because we love her so much. But in this episode, you know, I think the MVP is maybe not for litigating the morality of what a character does, but just in terms of the raw, first of all, like in the closing minutes of last episode, she instantly got two people who were at each other's throats and refusing to give an inch in terms of any form of compromise to propose of their own accord self-sacrifice and join forces specifically to protect her. And that very fragile alliance holds for this entire episode because Chuck and Axe care about her so much. I think that's a great testament to the loyalty she inspires. I think it's just a testament to how important she is to the character of the show. And just you know, she is the person who has the most on the line, technically. Like, she's the one most directly looking at jail time, even though, as she mentions, if she goes to jail, they go down with her. But she is the one who is being saved by what happens in this episode, and she gets what she needs and what she wants. She gets off, (laughs) if you will. And, you know, she does some shady things to do that. She puts uh, the charm on Mafi. But she, like Chuck and Axe, Muffy, without, or with some hesitation, but with much less hesitation than he would if anyone else were involved, right. does what he needs to do. And I I will probably agree with a lot of the points you make about what this means for Wendy's state of mind and Wendy's character. But just, just in terms of the raw, who got the most done in this episode and who had the most done for them, I think it's pretty clearly her. I actually agree with everything you just said, but I also disagree with everything, which is, I think, what makes this such an interesting moment for Wendy. I think it's more of an interpretation of the facts. I think we agree. We just weight things differently. So all of these people have to change something about not only their end game, but the way they're approaching it because of her. She's supposed to be the one who saves them from their from themselves. That's her role, not only on the show, but in the show's universe, in their universe. And I, Wendy's always been one of my favorite characters on the show, because despite what you just acknowledged, this like fundamental conflict of interest that exists among all parties, she's found some way to transcend that and to continue to be somebody who you root for largely absent of shame, which you cannot say about the other characters on the show. And you can't really say about her and after this episode. That's the thing. And I, I just don't like that feeling. That just so bums think, me out. So she, I mean, she compromised something fundamental about who she is, right? She did. You can't deny this, that. I actually think this reveals how she has been compromised. I think this just kind of lays bare 
her Machiavellian tendencies, her self-preserving tendencies. I think it forces us to confront a lot of uncomfortable truths about this character, which I think feels unpleasant, but doesn't necessarily represent something that like she actively did this episode. I think the thing that you're talking about, putting herself in a position where she needed to be saved, that was something she did in the season two finale. Right. So I can't hold it against her too but here's, much. But here's what happens in this episode. Like, I, I think you're right that this has always been there as part of her character under the surface. The reason that she's so effective at what she does is because she's able ultimately to expertly manipulate people. What What is guiding people and directing them if not on some level manipulating them? Like maybe that's a, a sad view of humanity, but I kind of think that's true. So she, sure, she takes stock of the person she's talking to and the per- people that the, that person is interacting with and makes a calculation. That is that is her work boiled down. She always is making a calculation and telling people how to behave. So that hasn't changed. But the thing that's different is that she used it for her benefit in a way that she just is not supposed to. And she is betraying her oath and her integrity and, and as, as Taylor calls her out on doing. When... Wendy is in that room with Axe and the twins and, and Bach and is, is saying, you know, he likes me and describing his heart and his unwillingness to lie and his sense of humor. She's actually betraying her confidence with Mafi. She's saying, this is what I know about him based on what he has confided in me. Like, that is like base treachery in a way that I find And it's what repulsive. blew up her marriage. She was, it's what, you know, Chuck stepping over her boundaries and looking at her notes was what broke the relationship the right. first time it happened. I think the thing I've always admired about Wendy, and maybe this is naive, is that it simultaneously felt like she was able to operate with the best operators, but still maintain some level of integrity that not only separated her from the from the other two, but kept them tethered to Earth. I think this more like relays or lays bare a certain lack of integrity that I would argue is kind of necessary to work with people that she knows are white collar criminals and be married to someone that she knows is also a a white collar criminal in his own way. I think she operates with the sense she's able to, she's been able to distinguish herself from them. And I argue like, cultivate a certain level of superiority from them just in terms right, like, of like why did she, she leave chuck them. why did she tell axe i'll only come back on these terms it was because there but was, was a line that she own... didn't think was acceptable to cross and she just crossed it but even with the axe thing that was more about like the power dynamics of her relationship with him that was that's what she just used against mafi her the power dynamics of her but it wasn't like the ethics him. of the power dynamics it was just like i need to maintain separation because like i just can't deal with you it wasn't like i don't think it's ethical to deal with you I do I do think she does more extreme he- things here than she does before, but I just think it sheds light on a certain willingness to go there that has always been there. And right. I think we've kind of litigated... I'm out on Wendy, guys. Out on Wendy. I'm with Taylor, standing in Wendy's office, calling out this just melting away of I mean, Wendy's humanity. I am all for making Taylor the MVP of the show each and every week. They don't get that much to do this week, but I am sure that will not be the case in weeks to come. What do you think about Chuck? Is Chuck an MVP and LVP somewhere in between? I'm, I'm really torn on this. If I'm going to call Wendy an MVP, I would say Chuck is a secondary MVP. They are obviously a marital unit. They're on two sides. They're on the same side of this legal dispute. I think he he does show that he has the stomach of a billy goat <laughs> to break down Dr. Gilbert. He gets what he needs to get done done. He plants some evidence. He breaks a man in interrogation. He, he deals a lot. I think Chuck acts 
and Wendy are all basically winners this week. Uh, I would just argue that Wendy is the most because she had the most on the line. So I am right now with Wendy where I was with Chuck over the you know last few weeks and maybe even seasons where I was holding him to the standard that I thought he should be held to and not necessarily to the standard that is real. But he also is actually achieving something in this episode. And that is a difference because usually he is compromising something fundamental about his sense of self and getting owned. And he wasn't getting owned this episode. And I think like, yeah, he got got something for something. What about on the other side? Who did not get something? Who's the LVP, a category that we usually reserve for Lyra Axelrod, who was mercifully not on this episode of Billions? I think we're both in agreement that someone who who really lost out this week was our boy Brian Connerty. Extremely tough episode (laughs) for our boy Brian Connerty. (laughs) Tough, tough stuff, as Jason would say. Connerty really took a big swing this season, and this episode was just a big fat miss. He blew the case of his career, and he alienated everyone he's about to go work with again. Yeah, he was just the punching bag from start to finish. Amazingly, actually, even when he thought he was on the arc to victory, he was still getting dunked on. Like, Bach saying to him in the courtroom, respectfully, Your Honor, the only conspiracy here is the daft one my opposing counsel is engaging in, though in fairness to him, it might be more of a complex delusion. Like, he's just getting schooled. And just that crushing, crippling, gut-wrenching moment when he has to say out loud, in front of people, into the world, making it real. Your Honor, it pains me to say this. Since this morning, I've learned I had misinformation. I can no longer prove what I told you in conference. He knows that's not true. He knows he didn't have misinformation. He had it right, and he still can't win. What a terrible feeling. What a broken man he's going to be now. Imagine actually knowing you were right and still not being able to get the win. That's just gutting the Eastern District we're dismissing the indictment. And then finding out from Jeffco that he has to go back to Southern to work with Chuck, to work with Sacker, these people he now hates. We should talk about the relationship with Sacker. They're kind of Chuck's two children. One of them is Chief very obviously in favor relative to the other one. Sacker executes the raid on Gilbert. She is a party to this war room, which maybe we'll get more of that in the upcoming weeks. These sort of like undercover white collar cases that he wants to prosecute, even though Jeff Coat doesn't want him to prosecute them. Right. So she's riding high. She's celebrating a bar and Connery being <laughs> the confrontational Irishman that he is, <laughs> decides to stroll in and yell at her even as she's taking a victory lap. And he specifically says to her, I used to admire your political fluidity. I thought it was sophistication. Now I realize you're just completely bankrupt, which he thinks is a huge insult. And she turns it right around and says, and I used to admire your dogged sense of what's right. Now I see it's just plotting ignorance. What a dagger to the heart. That's one of my nominees for best quotes of we the episode. Lot here. Quotes of the week. So let's run through those. That that Sacker line was one of mine. Why don't you uh why don't you run through a couple of your favorites? So we talked about it. It's my case isn't overcooked at all. It's also like the El Dente thing is part of a really convoluted metaphor about the state of the the legal <laughs> case that they're right. making. My case isn't overcooked at all. It's El Dente to the tooth. And my last name's El DeGiulio. I know what it means. Uh not a big week for wags. Again, yeah, very, I'm sure that will change in the wags. future. Uh, but he does get a great line in when they're talking about their various strategies and Bach advises against something. Wags goes, you're a lawyer, but I'm a ruffian. Incredible. It's great that he knows himself, you know? (laughs) 
couple more. When Chuck is uh, trying to set up Gilbert to take this plea, and he says, I'm going to step out for a cup of coffee. And Gilbert's like, why is always a cup of coffee? A uh, car salesman pretends to step out for a cup of coffee. Cops on TV, you. And Chuck says, well... Goes down easier than Hemlock. I always love when TV characters <laughs> point out TV cliches, especially because Chuck, as like technically a law enforcement employee, is basically a cop on TV. Real nice meta wink there. I just, I just enjoy um, any allusion to Socrates, so I, I really cherish the Hemlock line there. Uh, even in an episode that is a total L, L for Connerty. <laughs> I still found it invigorating and winning when he refused to fully concede defeat and stood up in the courtroom and said, even as we withdraw, we will, I will continue to investigate because the sabotage did happen. The stock was manipulated and we won't stop until the right man is brought to justice for it. And then DiGiulio was like, well, we'll need uh, to leave that out of the record. Yeah, strike that, <laughs> folks. And, and then, then we the already Sacker talked line. about Connery and Sacker. So, boy, where does this leave us? We're in the back half of the season. There's a lot that is already in play, but also presumably a lot that they're going to now set up for fresh plot for the back half of season three. So what are you looking forward to, not only for next week, but the rest of the way? Well, we mentioned already we're still waiting on that Malkovich shoe to drop. Yeah, what's up with that? Rubbing my hands. Is there a chance that that's like just one episode after all of this? I think they've mentioned he's signed on for multiple. So, but, I but, like, could we're, be at, we're almost out of time means, here. I know, which means he must be coming soon. So. so we're both looking forward to that. But in the in the final moments of the episode, the way they, they shoot the party at Axis Place, maybe it's because I knew like an end was coming, so I was expecting something dramatic to happen. But there's something like eerie and weighted with dread about it and after Axe strips and gets in the uh, unhygienic bathtub yes. hot tub with uh, three naked women he kind of relaxes back and the camera zooms in on his face and like I think he wasn't blinking he his well his like eyelids first his eyelids started to kind of twitch they were like twitching and then he ceases to blink and his eyes are and doesn't really move. wide and staring and so, his head goes back a little bit, kind of leans back and he's looking up. If Billions just decided to like pull a halt and catch fire and just like kill one of its protagonists, sorry, spoilers <laughs> for halt and catch fire, but one of the protagonists dies of just like a freak brain condition basically out of nowhere because life is cruel and that's an important lesson and maybe Damian Lewis had to go play Rob Ford <laughs> and wear really disturbing prosthetics for it. Um, maybe they're just going to straight up murder one of their characters out of nowhere for no good reason, but I don't think that's like fully what happened. I don't think... It's gonna be that crazy. I but did. I did have a similar reaction where I was like, "Oh my god, is he is he having a heart attack? Is yeah, he having like, a stroke? I was thinking like, heart attack wrong? or stroke. But like, I th ultimately, I'm like, maybe the pill just kicked in. Oh, like, yeah. It just feels yeah, like maybe the pill just kicked it. in, and he's like, "Well, I could look at the uh, the orb-like objects right in front of me, or I could look at the orb-like objects in the sky. You know, either one." Yeah, I hope I hope Alex <laughs> has a great time. If that's the case, he deserves it. But. I agree. Um. There's been compelling evidence for quite some time that ultimately the show will pit Taylor and Axe against each other. I have rebelled against that idea for as long as possible because I love that relationship so much and I love their scenes together so much. This was the episode where I, I could no longer convince myself that a, a rift between Taylor and Axe and Wendy is not coming. It just seems inevitable at this point. I mean, Taylor was threatening Wendy. 
and so threatening was justifiably Wendy. angry with her. Yes, and they was were clearly not happy with Axe. Accurately so. I would not be happy with Axe either. I think Axe has done a lot of preventable things to distance Taylor and make them not feel like they are a true part of the inner circle and really making it clear that there is like a separation there. My question is like when this erupts, where where do your loyalties lie? Who are you rooting for? How do you think it's going to play out? I will always I will I think I will always be T-Max. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and I really like Taylor. I think like predicting the results. This is billions. I think Axe is going to come out on top. Right. But I'm rooting for Taylor. I'm also dreading, you know, Miles brought up this possibility. Yes. Last the Oscar week relationship. That, well, the timing of that now feels particularly suspicious to me. But or maybe but, Taylor just quits and goes to Silicon Valley. Well, right. So that's the other possibility is that now as Taylor's concerns about what is transpiring every minute of every day at Axe Capital heighten and Taylor has an increasingly difficult time silencing those concerns maybe the relationship with Oscar just becomes this source of light that makes the darkness at Axe Capital stand out in a way that makes it even harder to ignore or maybe another or there's some double crossing about to happen and it's going to break my heart and I just want the best for Taylor same Guys, this is supposed to be a 20-minute podcast, but Billions is a rich and many-layered show, and we just love talking about it. So thank you, as always, for joining us for the Recapables Billions. Farewell to Mr. Dake. Farewell to all of you. Please join us again. It remains to be seen who the us will be exactly next week, but join us here at The Ringer next week for episode eight. Please be sure to check out the Atlanta episodes on our Recapables feed, and please also subscribe to our Westworld The Recapables feed. Al, it's been a pleasure sharing this with you. Felt like pure velvet. I don't think we're in for a Chuck McConaughey situation. Our theme song was made by our friends at songfinch.com. Check out Songfinch to turn your stories, memories, and feelings into a one-of-a-kind song by professional musicians. It makes the perfect gift for any occasion. songfinch.com. <laughs>